Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? How would you define extremism? If you asked 10 different people, you'd probably get 10 different answers. And you probably have 10 different opinions on how relevant that is to daily life. But there's no better person to ask than Elizabeth Newman. She has served in multiple administrations in the Department of Homeland Security. And in her time there, she's worked on extremism. But she was there at the period when extremism changed from something that tended to happen locally overseas to something that could happen domestically online. And as that monster continued to develop, domestic extremism changed from maybe being something that was imported to something that's homegrown. In fact, it's homegrown right inside of some of our churches. It's being homegrown right inside of the hearts of people that we would call Christians. Elizabeth is a Christian. She is committed to Jesus, and she is deeply concerned about the extremism that's beginning to take root in some Christian places. So I don't want to ruin this conversation. She is so insightful. You are going to learn something new today. Elizabeth Newman, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to join you. Oh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, ever since I heard your interview on a different podcast. But there's a good chance that people listening aren't familiar with you and your story. And so I'd like to start here. Tell us how you got involved with the Department of Homeland Security and specifically how you got involved during the Trump presidency. Yes. So I've been in Homeland Security and counterterrorism for over 20 years now. I was part of the Bush administration, actually worked on the presidential campaign in Austin as a college student, and then moved to DC and joined the Bush administration. And then 9-11 happened and Mm. Homeland Security was the field that needed the most help. And so it just was one of those things that I fell into and was very blessed with some unique opportunities to work with some really amazing, talented counterterrorism professionals and kind of built up my career from there. And what did you do during that time period? What was your work focused on? In the Bush administration, I was a part of a team called the Domestic Counterterrorism Team, but it wasn't what we now call domestic terrorism. It was how do we get the FBI and local law enforcement to be able to share information so that we can detect plots that might be being pulled together by al-Qaeda later ISIS. But at the time, we were really focused on al-Qaeda and trying to figure out where those needles in the haystack were so that we could identify plots and disrupt them. So it was very foreign-focused, but my responsibilities were building up the apparatus within the homeland to detect those plots. 
Yeah, so if I'm understanding you correctly, you were looking for cases where foreign actors were effectively either radicalizing domestic people or moving foreign people to the United States for the sake of terrorism. Is that right? Am I understanding that? Sure, that's a good distinction. And actually, if you think about it in terms of time frame, just after 9-11, it was entirely about outside threats coming into the United States. And one of the great things that I'm very proud of our homeland security apparatus is that we made our borders really strong. This concept of pushing the borders out and taking the fight overseas made it really difficult for foreign terrorists to get into the United States. And then the internet, (laughs) they started to be able to radicalize within the United States. So that phenomenon was called homegrown violent extremism. These were people that may or may not have had direct contact with al-Qaeda or ISIS. They were often inspired by and went off and conducted attacks like San Bernardino, you might remember, when was that, 2015-ish? And that was an ISIS-inspired attack. So you didn't necessarily need to travel to Afghanistan and get training anymore. You could just learn it from the internet. Today, what we're more worried about is the domestic terrorism. Those are people that might be radicalized online. Increasingly, it is online. But their ideologies are not inspired by foreign terrorists. They tend to have, sadly, the U.S. is an exporter of these ideologies, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, anti-government sentiments. The U.S. has a pretty long history of having violent extremists in our midst, but we really, for a good 15 years after 9-11, were just focused on the foreign terrorism problem. And it's only been recently that government folks started to realize, oh, oh, we have an actually a bigger problem with domestic terrorist movements inside the United States. So the threat has morphed and changed over the last 20 years. And that is a tremendous change over the last 20 years. So let's maybe fast forward to the Trump presidency and how you got involved with the DHS there. Yes. So reluctantly, I had two little kids during the 2016 election. I was not paying attention to politics. (laughs) I mean, other than like, you know, you would have the conversations at the, I remember Easter that year, we were living in Dallas and that's where my family is. And, you know, people are like, do you think Donald Trump has a chance? No, there is no way that Donald Trump, like you just don't understand politics. Politics, the structure is just not built for a candidate like Donald Trump. So I, like everybody, was just floored that he ended up being the party's nominee, let alone won. And so when he won, most Republicans that had worked previously in the Bush administration were also like, oh my gosh, what does this mean for our government? Okay. And so, you know, when you've been in politics before as a political appointee, like you have your network. So people start calling you, hey, do you want to put your resume in? We're filling out the slate of people who are going to go here and here. I'm like, nope, not interested. This is not my candidate. My kids are young. I'm busy. You know, no, thank you. And then in December, John Kelly was nominated as the Secretary of Homeland Security. Somebody reached out to me and was like, hey, this is a really good guy. You should come work for him. I was like, that is that is different. I would work for a John Kelly, but no, not interested. Then three days before the inauguration, a friend called and I didn't know it at the time, but they had been briefed on the FBI's investigations about Russia potentially having infiltrated the Trump campaign. 
and Russian tampering with the election. Now we understand better. It's through disinformation type means, not necessarily tampering with votes. But the brief that she had received was very concerning because at the time they didn't know if there were people inside the Trump administration that were actually agents for the Russian government, wittingly or unwittingly. And so she didn't go into all that detail. It was later that I pieced this together, but the call was basically like, there's some really not great stuff happening from a security standpoint, and we need people we can trust. Will you please come in? And that's a very different ask than like, hey, do you want to... want to move up the ladder, get the exciting yeah, new yeah. job? So it's almost like you heard a sense of urgency. There are things very happening much. that we are deeply concerned about. And in retrospect, we can look back on it and realize, yeah, that there was not collusion with the Russians and the Trump administration. As you just said, it was more of a campaign of misinformation and disinformation, which I would love to get into and explain a little bit more of. But you start working inside of the Trump apparatus <laughs> for John Kelly, and eventually you end up leaving. So tell us why you left. Yes. Yeah, so I served John Kelly as his deputy chief of staff, and he was only there until like August. Then he goes to the White House and becomes the chief of staff to Trump. And during the period that he was the White House chief of staff, there was some stability. Like he was able to try to get the government to function normally, but that didn't last. And eventually he got pushed out. And Kirsten Nielsen, who had become the secretary she got pushed out. And so like you start to see the dominoes fall and rumors abound of your names on a list because you're associated with John Kelly and Trump hates Kelly. And so we often talked about it as it's 10 dimensional chess every day. You're walking into an environment. You don't know who you can trust. You don't know if the people you're working with actually are mission-minded, like, oh, my job is to try to secure the homeland and what's the best thing to do to accomplish that mission? Or if it is about your own ego and your own agenda or, and this is normal in a political administration, right? You usually have people come in that are like diehard fans of whoever the president is. So that's not abnormal. What's abnormal was like, there was no level of maturity overseeing the young people. So you had a lot of young people, very enthusiastic that increasingly were being given positions, I think like college graduate being given a position that a 45-year-old would normally take in a normal administration. And that has consequences in terms of the government's basic functioning, as well as the chaos that reigns. So Did that happened because the mature individuals in the room weren't interested in working with the administration? Did it happen because there was some sort of resignation and people were leaving? That just seems mind-blowing to me. I mean, if I was working inside the government, the last thing I would want to do is hire a bunch of people who are inexperienced to take over the protection of our country from terrorist threats. And it really was a change over time because in 2017, you did have a lot of Republicans with previous executive branch experience or legislative branch experience coming into the government and trying to operate as normal. I think many of us just assumed incorrectly that Trump would learn the job and that his immediate small circle around him would learn how to function in government and they would adjust to the system. And that is not what happened. What happened was 
they played along for a little bit and then they learned enough of the system to then figure out how to go around the system or break the system. So slowly but surely, as people would hold their ground and say, no, Mr. President, you can't dig a moat and put alligators in it. No, we cannot shoot people from the wall. Immigrants trying to sneak in that there's no probable cause to shoot people. These are real conversations. And he would get frustrated. He would get very frustrated when he was told no, because his view of the presidency was one of what his life was like as CEO of his companies, absolute power. I just wake up one morning, I decide I want to do something, there should be no constraints. And when you had people with experience say, no, no, you can't because of X, Y, and Z. Hold on. I just got to ask, the crocodiles in the moat, is that a metaphor or was that serious? No, no. We had to go do budget estimates for that. Like that, (laughs) that was like a real thing. Uh, So you're saying my tax dollars were spent on budget estimates for a medieval approach to solving a immigration problem. Yes, that is correct. (laughs) Oh, um, you know, I didn't think this conversation was going to go there, but we might as well just end right now on a delicious <laughs> note like that, because that is delightful. That is hilarious. So anyways, you're working in this administration. You're surrounded by people who are inexperienced, who are immature, who, to me, sound a bit like fanboys over the existing president. Why do you end up leaving? I mean, confluence of events. One, my husband very reluctantly let us go back to D.C. and he gave me two years. I got a third year out of him. (laughs) By the summer of the third year, he's like, what's your exit strategy? And so I started working on it then. But around the time that he and I are having this conversation, El Paso happened, the attack at the Walmart. And my job at the time, I was the assistant secretary for counterterrorism. So we had been seeing domestic terrorism explode from a statistics standpoint, but statistics always lag and government statistics in particular, really, really bad. So it took us a while to see the trend. If you look at the data now, you can see the spike start to happen in 2015, but really wasn't until like 2017, 2018 that law enforcement starts to go, oh, we have a problem. So by 2019, we had these spate of attacks, including what happened in Christchurch, which blew everybody's mind. We were like, oh my gosh, we have white supremacists in New Zealand doing these attacks. Like, oh, what has happened? And what has happened is we've had this threat on a low boil that has metastasized to a point where I don't know that we can put the genie back in the bottle. It's a very different type of problem than Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Anyway, in the context of El Paso, there, as with most things in government, some of the projects that we were trying to get launched finally got the attention of people in the White House, people on the Hill. And so it created this opportunity for us to create some programs to better address domestic terrorism. So I eked out a few more months out of my husband and stayed until April. In the middle of that, of course, COVID hit. And so that also delayed things. Anyway, so the point was, I, both for family reasons as well as personal reasons, I want to say sometime that fall, somebody was like, hey, are you going to vote for Trump again in the next presidential election? And without even thinking, I was like, oh, no, no way. And it really kind of caused me to pause because as a political appointee, you are representing the president's agenda. And there were certainly days where I struggled with figuring out how to do that and reconcile it with my faith and with my beliefs. I never had a problem saying no if something was illegal, Um, but there are a lot of things short of being illegal that are just morally wrong, child separation being one of them. 
and it was a constant battle. So after three years, it was very easy for me to see that he did not have the confidence or the character or the policies that I agree with. And so I knew intuitively, I'm not going to vote for this man. And there was a check in my spirit that I really shouldn't be representing him then. So it took some time to leave. But I have a feeling given what happened in 2020, if I hadn't left, I would have been told to leave because it was most of the people that started in 2017 got pushed out by 2020. So just two months after you leave DHS, the events at Lafayette Park happen. And I've heard you describe this as kind of another turning point for you. So, so maybe just remind our audience what happened there and how you saw it. So the incident in Lafayette Square was tied to the George Floyd protest. And everybody recalls the early summer of 2020. There were a lot of protests. Yeah, Some of them were violent. The statistics showed that by and large, I want to say it's 93% were not, but some were. And there had been some rhetoric that was building and eventually became a campaign theme of law and order. And around this time, the president was not doing well in the polls. I mean, that context is important. He sees Fox News airing the scenes of rioting over and over and over again, so much so that when the polls were taken in November of Fox News audiences, their perception of the protests were that they were all riotous. I mean, I was asked frequently in 2021 when I would speak to audiences if they needed to be concerned about riots in their cities because of what they had seen in Portland or what they had seen in Seattle. So there was definitely a perception in his core base that these riots were out of control. The night before the incident that you asked about, there had been some protests that required some law enforcement intervention. And it resulted in a church right across the street from the White House that's very famous. It's an old church and every president during their inaugural events goes to a prayer service at this church, St. John's Church, very cute church. It had been damaged the night before, small fire, easily repairable, but it had been damaged. If Trump is good at anything, he is good at optics. He would get into the weeds on events, not about the substance of what he was doing, but on the size of the stage or the size of the backdrop. So I fully think that it was probably his idea. He comes up with the idea that they should go see the church. And this is the famous thing where he walks out and he holds the Bible upside down. And uh, there were some generals that walked across the park with him that didn't know what they were doing and eventually like peeled off and left because they realized, oh, this is a photo op and that's not what generals are supposed to be doing. But the key thing that really bothered me is that before he walked out there, they sent in kind of riot handling law enforcement and military apparatus to clear the square. At the time, there were a handful of people there. Like there was nothing violent going on. Lafayette Square is a known location for protests and the First Amendment right speech. And they literally spread tear gas. Like there was no notice. There was no like, hey, we need to clear the square, which the Secret Service has to do all the time. Anytime there's a movement or a helicopter landing, they push people back. Like they have well defined protocols for how you handle extending the perimeter so the president can move somewhere. 
And instead of using those, they deployed tear gas. They sent in helicopters that swooshed very low in an urban environment. I mean, these were scenes from a country that we would consider totalitarian or authoritarian. We would issue diplomatic statements of condemnation if this type of activity happened in one of our allies or enemy nations. We would consider that a violation of human rights. And that happened in an American city in front of the White House. Like, it just was so mind-boggling to me. And in your view, this is an optics thing? Like, this is a show. We're going to show the strong hand of the government? Or this, obviously, in your view, is not a legitimate response to someone, you know, lighting a fire in a historic church? Yeah. I mean, if he wanted to do his photo op, that's fine. But there was no reason to deploy tear gas or swoop in helicopters or deploy military. Like, there was no threat at the time that he was going to do this walk. It just was to, I don't know, like make him feel strong and important. Like he loves that military show of force. You remember he wanted the military parades and the military were like, yeah, we don't do that in America. Like they do in France. I mean, so it's just his mentality to want to feel like, you know, he's the commander in chief and had tendencies to put alligators in moats and shoot people from the wall. Like there was this leaning over to show excessive force in a way that is not what we do in America. The problem is, and this is what got me, it's not that Trump had that instinct. It's that the people around him let it happen. If he had wanted to do this in 2017, there were any number of people that would have talked him out of it or diverted them into a healthier way of achieving his objective within the rule of law. All of those people were gone. And so you're left with people who either don't know what the law is, don't know what the rules are, or they know it and they don't care. And that is where I was like, oh my goodness, we are in a very dangerous position where you have a president who already has bad instincts in this space and there are no more guardrails left. And this begins to connect with something I've heard you say elsewhere, which is that, well, maybe you can't draw a direct line between Trump's rhetoric and domestic terrorism or violence. There is a correlation there. There's something that's interrelated there. So I want to hear you explain that. Talk a bit about how Trump's muscular rhetoric is often belittling, demeaning. And sometimes when I say violent, I don't mean his words are violence. I mean, he's using words that suggest violence. And just to get you and our audience into this space, I want to play a clip for you from a recent Trump rally that might give us a bit of a concrete taste of the kind of thing that we're talking about. You know, in this country, they leak all over the place, even on the Supreme Court. By the way, you have to find the leaker of the Supreme Court. You have to find the leaker. You know how you find the leaker? They'll say, oh, this is treasonous, what I said. So they can't find the leaker. He leaked all about Roe v. Wade. Look, this person leaked from the Supreme Court. Never happened. You know how you find? But they don't want to mention this because they think it's so terrible. You take the writer... Because you're never going to find it. They're going through phone records. It's been a long time. You take the writer and or the publisher of the paper, a certain paper that you know, and you say, who is the leaker? National security. And they say, we're not going to tell you. They say, it's okay, you're going to jail. And when this person realizes that he is going to be the bride of another prisoner very shortly, <laughs> he will say... I'd very much like to uh, tell you exactly who that leaker it was Bill Jones. I swear he's a leaker, and we got him. But they don't want to do that. 
They don't want to do that, but that's the only way you're going to find. We have to find. Can you imagine? Okay, so it's supposed to be a comedic thing, and on one level, you want to laugh at it because it is clownish, but it's also very serious because what we have here is a former president directly suggesting that we violate the First Amendment, the freedom of the press, by throwing either a publisher or a reporter into jail if they won't follow his wishes, which then culminates in him suggesting that, yes, he will tell us who the leaker is because he's going to be raped in prison. That's when I say the words may not be violence, but they are suggesting a kind of violence. And so you're free to respond to the clip itself, but I want you to help put into perspective for us, how does this relate to domestic terrorism? And by the way, during his administration, he instructed the Justice Department to investigate leaks, uh, press leaks. And look, there are certain types of leaks that have caused grave damage to national security. And there are times and spaces when we need the legal system to be able to address that. This probably, the incident he's describing doesn't rise to that occasion, but that did not prevent him during his tenure from trying to use the tools of government to investigate a number of reporters. And in fact, the Justice Department just this week released new guidelines to be very clear that they will no longer do that, that they won't be getting warrants to search reporters' emails and tapping their phones, which is reportedly what the Trump administration was doing. It's like J. Edgar Hoover stuff. Yes, very much. That's a really good point. When you're trying to understand Trump, his mindset was very much formed during those 1960s and 70s days. Like he idolizes Nixon. He idolizes the authoritarian nature of the executive branch during that time period. He does not see the abuses the way the rest of us look back on that period. He actually sees it as the glory days. So exactly, J. Edgar Hoover. But yes, I mean, your question about his rhetoric, he emboldened extremists. It was somewhat evident at the time, but again, the data sometimes lags, but now you can go back. And there have been studies done. This started like in 2016 during his campaign rallies in the areas where he would speak, you could see spikes in online hateful rhetoric, as well as local hate crimes would spike in the days after he would speak. So it's not just a, hey, having the president of the United States say these things makes people feel more emboldened. There's actually a direct correlation between where he would speak and incidents happening in that area. Can you define for us, for somebody who's maybe skeptical about what you're saying, because you're saying, okay, spikes in hateful speech and spikes in violence. What does that mean? I mean, define for us hateful speech, define for us whatever violence is, and then help us understand, like, are we talking about, you know, one out of every 100 cases, there's like two or three instances of this. And so it's really not that statistically notable. Mm, Good point. I don't have the statistics right at hand, but I don't know if you do show notes. I can find the article and share it with you for show notes. We'll link to that in the show notes, but give us the Reader's Digest. Yeah. So the hateful rhetoric, I work for a tech firm called Moonshot and our team spends time in what we call online spaces where domestic violent extremists communicate and share their memes, share their ideology and their incitement to violence. We can categorize types of speech or types of inquiries Um, online dialogue 
and put it on a spectrum of this is hateful to this is like incitement to violence. And it gets a little bit into etymology and you have to translate online dialogue. You're using technology to help you do some of this. But basically we can go down to a county level, we can go to a state level and we can look at national trends. You know, prime example, anytime you have an incident like the Buffalo shooting earlier this year, you're going to see a spike in white nationalists, white supremacists talking and applauding what happened in Buffalo. So that's the kind of work that the company I work for does. So you can use that technology to tell you when certain topics trend, when certain narratives trend, and when speech becomes more or less violent in those spaces. So that's on the online side. You can actually take a snapshot in time and be able to see he speaks on this date. And then here's how the various forums responded online to that comment. So this is very data-driven, right? I mean, that's what I want people to hear because I think sometimes people start hearing this like, oh, this is just anecdotal. This is just someone's impression. You're saying, no, we're in the spaces. We're collecting the data. I'm assuming you're using machine learning and other technologies to help you do this. And we're seeing the correlation or you're seeing the correlation that you're describing. This isn't just a fictional anecdotal perception of reality. That's exactly right. One of the stats that I often use, which is not directly related to Trump, but just kind of fascinating how we as a country responded to the COVID lockdowns in April of 2020. So this is like two or three weeks into lockdown. There was a 37% increase in engagement with extremist content online. If you were in a state with a stay-at-home order that was in place for more than 10 days, your increase was higher than places where there wasn't a stay-at-home order. So for some reason, if you were stuck at home, maybe it's because you're angry at the government, maybe you're stuck at home and you have nothing else to do, you were searching for extremist content online. So that's April 2020. By April 2021, so a year later, we had a 140% increase in searching for that extremist content. We know that crises are often used by extremist actors to recruit, so that could be part of it. It also was just a very volatile year going on with what eventually culminated in January 6th. But that's the kind of data we can see and see how the narratives are changing over time online. But your question about the offline thing, which I didn't realize when I was in government, it was after leaving government that I started to look at outside news organizations and think tanks, being able to draw the correlation. And this is where I'll get you the story for the show notes. I want to say that in a two-year period, like 2016 to 2018, there were over 100 cases in court of individuals using as a defense that Donald Trump, the president, had said some angry thing about some category of people, Asians, Hispanics, Muslims. And that was why they had done something criminal against that person. When we talk about hate crimes, it's often some form of physical intimidation or actual harm. Sometimes it escalates beyond that. It could be actually killing somebody. That could be a hate crime. But when they studied the hate crimes and they studied the actual court records, they were finding references to Donald Trump. They also went back and looked for references in court records to Obama and Bush. There were none. So there was this dramatic increase in president being referenced as justification for why 
they had attacked somebody. Oh, that's fascinating. And I think this is incredibly important on a number of levels. Having had these conversations with people across a broad political spectrum, I know how they go, to a certain subcategory of people who are further on the right, they'll say, well, what about Antifa? What about Portland? What about Seattle? And so I want to talk to that person for just a second and say, okay, sure, true enough, absolutely. No violence on one side justifies violence on the other side, especially given that our audience is Christians. It does not justify Christian violence or Christians enacting violence. And I'm not claiming that all these people people were Christians. I have no idea what their faith backgrounds are. But there's a real value here to talking about this for people on the right who want to continue to support Donald Trump to understand you are supporting a president whose rhetoric causes hateful rhetoric online and sometimes comes out in the real world form of violence or acts of violence. And that, as Christians, should be incredibly concerning to us. That's not the kind of leader, in my opinion, that we should be wanting to support. It's part of why, by the way, the case for let's have character and leadership matters tremendously because it turns out the character of your leader has a direct repercussion on the lives of the individuals who he leads. I want to dig in a little bit more into the concept of radicalization and how that's happening domestically. Because like you said, when you came in to DHS, the main concern was radicalization that was happening abroad. And then the internet comes along and flattens everything. It gives these international actors very direct access to Americans or internationals living in America where they can radicalize them here with in our own country. Obviously, we fast forward to the 2016 election, and we now know that Russia conducted a immense misinformation and disinformation campaign using social media. And that was using, I mean, frankly, old KGB tactics. There was nothing new about what they're doing. I don't want to get in this because we don't have time, but it's just simply worth saying that hasn't ceased. In fact, it's going to get worse with artificial intelligence because it's far easier to create misinformation now than it was even <laughs> in 2016. But where I want to focus our attention is domestically. Let's just start here. Define for us what radicalization is, how it happens, and then we'll move more towards how that happens domestically, domestic groups radicalizing domestic individuals. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Okay, so in order for me to explain radicalization, I need to first define extremism. Okay. This is important because the word gets used a lot. 
we call people extreme, we call people radical. But for a terrorism person like myself, there is an actual definition. So I'm using J.M. Berger's book. It's very short if anybody is interested in a quick primer on extremism. But his definition is the belief that an in-group's success or survival can never be separated from the need for hostile action against the out-group. So you have an us-them construct, an in-group that has identified and identified out-groups who are posing a threat to their success or survival. So radicalization is when it's the escalation of an in-group's extremist orientation in the form of increasingly negative views about an out-group or the endorsement of increasingly hostile or violent actions against an outgroup. You can have very negative views about your outgroup or outgroups, but if you do not advocate for hostile action, then you're not extremist. So you need both. You need this us-them construct, a belief that the outgroup is going to hurt you, and a desire for hostile action to somehow secure your survival. The hostile action, though, some people may assume that it's violence. And if you are talking to a federal government employee, when they talk about extremism, you'll see them talk about violent extremism. That's because hostile action can, on the lower end of the spectrum, get into spaces that might be First Amendment protected activity. So the government cannot necessarily address some of the lower end of the spectrum. The high end of the spectrum of hostile action would be genocide, terrorism, hate crimes, things that are definitely criminal. But then where does bullying follow? Where does intimidation, hateful rhetoric? There are times that the law can say, no, you're not allowed to do that. That's criminal. But there's a whole lot of stuff that you can do that Berger would say that's hostile action. You are now an extremist in the way that you are characterizing or treating the other, calling for others to be hostile, even if it's just with their words. That could be extremist. Now, of course, the government's primary concern is preventing violence, and that's good. We want them to do that. But I would argue that the church needs to be spending a whole lot of time on these other aspects of hostile action, because it is a spectrum. And while not everybody, and I should be really clear about this, there are a whole lot of people out there that are vulnerable to being radicalized. And then there are people that are radicalizing. And then there's a much, much smaller subset that are actually radicalized and an infinitesimally smaller group that would actually mobilize to violence. We call it the funnel effect. Most of the government's infrastructure is focused on that tiny, tiny percentage problem is that the vulnerable and the radicalizing has expanded significantly in the last two to three years. And so a small percent of a large whole is still a large number. And that's where we have got to figure out how to reduce the vulnerable, how to reduce the number that are in this radicalization curious stage so that law enforcement can do its job and prevent the violence. And this is where I feel like the church civil society needs to step up because the government can't do the non-law enforcement stuff very well. Nor would we want it probably. (laughs) Exactly. We don't want them to do that. But you know what the church can do? The church can talk about gossip in the context of the meme you're sharing on Facebook. Like it's still gossip. You don't know it's true. It's still slander. And the Bible tells us not to participate in that. 
can you define for us vulnerable for a second? Because I think when the average person hears vulnerable, we tend to think about people who are maybe in poverty, who maybe have health issues, people who are experiencing, you know, serious familial social breakdown. Who are the vulnerable? Yeah, so that's a great question. We use the term to imply that there's some sort of psychosocial aspects in your background that might make you predisposed. So some of this is personality. There are certain personalities that are more likely to be susceptible to extremism. You also see this if you're familiar with cults at all. There are certain personalities that are more malleable to being persuaded into a cult. Somewhat similar, but it's not just personality. It's also incidents that have happened in your life, your background. So let me reverse the question and talk about what are resilience and protective factors, things that help people not be vulnerable, having a healthy self-esteem, having strong ties to a community, having a nuanced understanding of religion and ideology. Nuance is huge in extremism studies. Most extremists, when they are able to recruit, it's because they're offering a very black and white understanding of the world. They're offering it through their conspiracy theories, explanations that appeal to people's sense of justice, often because they've experienced some sort of harm or wrong in their life. So nuance, this idea that, hey, we're all fallen, we all make mistakes. Yes, there are incompetent people in government. Yes, the government makes mistakes. That doesn't mean it's a conspiracy. So having the ability to understand nuance is really important. Parental involvement in an individual's life, a diversity of nonviolent outlets for addressing grievances, societal inclusion, integration, and resources to address trauma and mental health issues. Those are all what we call primary preventative resilience and protective factors. It's wild hearing you describe this for a few reasons. In part, the big thing that comes to mind is living in a post-COVID world as a pastor, I can definably say that just, you know, this is anecdotal experience. Everybody I know, myself included, everybody I know is in a less mentally healthy place than they were before the pandemic. It turns out that, I mean, you brought up the isolation thing, the social isolation thing. This pandemic has had some serious effects on our psychology, on our social networks, on our sense of connectedness. And I think, like you said, on our openness to some of these radical ideas and why that's important to me. And I've heard you say this elsewhere is when I think about someone who's going to get radicalized, my mind often goes to the disenfranchised worker who can't get a job, who feels low and down on life. And while that person might be vulnerable, one of the things you said is that actually some of the vulnerable people, these are people who are middle class, they have decently paying jobs, and they are in this category because they are in such a psychologically unhealthy place. That's right. And when we talk about why people radicalize, it's often they've experienced some sense of loss. They've experienced a loss of significance, Mm. a loss of belonging, a humiliation, So there are certainly as a whole of society, we have experienced loss and we also are not good at grieving. Our national approach to loss is not a communal grief. You can go to other cultures and other societies that are better at doing things in community. We are so individualistic that to go through something like this, I mean, don't get me wrong. There were a lot of really good online church efforts. There was a really great program. I think TGC did it on lament in April of 2020. That meant so much to me. There were people trying 
we don't do grief and lament well. And so you end up with all of us experiencing this massive loss of what could have been and birthday parties and gatherings and things that we had hoped and planned for in 2020 and 2021. And then other people literally lost loved ones through death because of COVID. The amount of loss we've experienced is not insignificant. And so it's funny when COVID set in, I was still in government and I turned to my prevention team and I said, are we going to see a spike in people gravitating towards extremism? Go study the research. And they came back in two weeks and they were like, yes, for society to go through this, we are creating these openings, these vulnerabilities, and we have to assume certain people are going to move into a more extremist mindset as a response to what they're going through. So it's not shocking that we've seen spikes in violence. It's not shocking that QAnon became the thing that it was. And yet it's also kind of heartbreaking because it is very difficult to de-radicalize. And so I've spent a good deal of my time in government and almost all of my time out of government figuring out how we do prevention on that higher part of the radicalization funnel. Because if you can help the vulnerable or address and intervene as people are radicalizing, we actually have data that says, you know, we can do that pretty well. Once somebody's radicalized, it is so much harder to move them off of that mindset. Because here's the thing, it is not about the ideology. It is not about the Republican principles or the QAnon deep state cabal conspiracy that they bought into or the white nationalism that they really want to believe in. It's not about that. Ideology is fixing or addressing those unmet needs. It is giving them a place of belonging. It is giving them a community. It is giving them a sense of significance. So de-radicalizing, you can't address the ideology. You can't say white nationalism is wrong because the Bible says X, Y, and Z, or because it's just disgusting and you shouldn't believe that. They can't hear you. They weren't making that decision from a place of rationality to begin with. It was always a heart thing. Where we have seen success in people, usually it's disengagement. We try to get them out of an extremist movement as opposed to de-radicalizing. De-radicalizing takes a lot longer. But where you do see disengagement and de-radicalization, it is happening because of empathy and love. Two things that our faith teaches us conquers everything else. I'm very passionate that I think that the church is made for a moment like this, that the church has the answers. They don't have to search very far. Perfect love casts out fear. Like a lot of these drivers that are leading people to the conspiracy theories, to radicalize, to that extremist mindset, it's coming from a place of fear. And I actually, in large part, if it helps people have empathy for those that are caught up in extremism, that fear is not their fault. Like we are in a entire culture that is saturated and built on fear. People make money off of fear. You get your votes off of fear. Fear is driving most of the culture. So you wake up and we're in this culture that is predisposed to make you fear things. So it's not odd that somebody would be searching for answers to make them feel safer. It's just that they happened to gravitate towards extremist answers to address that fear problem that they have. 
And the way that we help them out of that is by pointing them to Christ to say, yeah, this world is scary. Take heart. I have overcome the world. That is hard to walk out in our faith on a daily basis. So if we want to be salt and light and help this very hurting world that we're in right now, we have to model that. We have to actually live what we believe. And it is not something that is going to be fixed like this. It will take time. It will take faithful loving on people who seem like they're down the rabbit hole and they're not coming back. And you know what? They might not come back. But if you're gentle and faithful and showing them that empathy and love, that's the best shot we have at bringing some of them back. Oh, man, I just have to say that was such a beautiful vision that you laid out. And as you're talking, I can see all of these pieces coming together, even in my own experience, because I've worked with so many family members who have lost other family members to radicalization. And just to be candid with you, I've seen dozens of cases now. I have not seen one help that family member come back out. And what you're saying is beautiful because what it says is we get fixated on the ideology and there's a place to talk about ideas. That's not the point. What we miss is that this is an experience that people are feeling of loss, of grief, of pain, of fear. And if we can't enter empathically into their experience and give them a better answer, give them a better story, give them a better option than what the conspiracy theory or the far right wing theory or whatever it is, is giving them, then we're going to lose them. And arguing about the ideology is a great way (laughs) in many ways to lose them. But I think more broadly, what frightens me is the church Up until 2016, when people were leaving the church because of these kinds of things, they were often leaving in the direction of the left or in the direction of atheism. They were leaving their faith behind. We are so ill-equipped to know what to do when someone goes deep into the right. We're so ill-equipped to know what to do when they go deep into the right and continue to use Christian-sounding language in the process. And what you said in the beginning about like vulnerability starts on one level with a sense of being attacked— and a fear, I can't help but think like this is exactly what we are seeing in this burgeoning Christian nationalism movement. It is the bedrock. It is the fundamental foundation of it all. I'm thinking about recent pieces that have come out in First Things by guys like Aaron Wren, who described the moment that we're living in. He calls it the negative world. He claims this is the first time in American history that Christians are viewed as negative, as morally deficient. And while I think that might describe some sense of what some people are experiencing, it's the fear thing that we're talking about. He's saying, you feel afraid. And as I talk to my friends who are becoming increasingly open to conspiracy theories or increasingly open to Christian nationalism, this is what it's always rooted in. They fear a sense of loss of cultural power and cultural ascendancy. And part of that's because they have a false narrative of American history and who had power when. But part of it is a real sense, like you said, of fear and of loss. So I want to get your perspective on that. And it has taken off rapidly. I mean, just two years ago, far-right people would not have called themselves Christian nationalists. That would have been an anathema. You know, no one would do that. And now we just had NatCon meet, and you've got seminary presidents like Al Mohler speaking there. You've got congressional figures like Josh Hawley and governors like Ron DeSantis. You've got people from the Daily Wire like Megan Basham. We've got all these people coming to this event, and they are having very pro-Christian. I mean, there's a speech that said that Christian nationalism is the traditional order of the United States. And the whole tone of the event, by the way, is fear. We're losing the country to the libs. We have to get our swords out. We need to fight back. And so I'm just curious, do you see Christian nationalism as a form of radicalization and extremism, or is it just a step on the path towards radicalism and extremism? 
there's a spectrum. And I listened to your conversation with David French on Christian nationalism. And I liked some of the examples that you guys talk through where you do have the barest of bare bones description of Christian nationalism. And probably I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with this piece. But that's actually not necessarily what Christian nationalism is. And there is no doubt in my mind that there are political operatives behind the scenes with the money using Christian nationalism as the latest way to build a political movement. It's like the 2020s version of the moral majority of the 1980s. So you can interpret this one of two ways. There's a sinister side to this, like this is how the Republican Party is going to gain their power and they're using this for votes and for fundraising. And I have no doubt, and I don't know the names off the top of my head, but there are people involved in the background that have been involved for the last 40 years. And this is just their latest iteration of how they keep their power. So there's that aspect to this. But then it's almost like the baby boomers who were kind of the target of the moral majority movement in the 80s, their generation is waning, right? They're retiring now. They are watching... Younger pastors take over their church. They're watching younger generations take over the political apparatuses that they've built. And there is a great sense of fear in that generation. And I have family members who will love to talk at the holiday dinners of why the world is just falling apart and we've got to do something. And so some of this feels very much like a generation realizing that the world has changed on them and they're trying to hold on as long as they can. And there are clearly Gen Z people that are heavily involved in Christian nationalism. That is true too. But there is something about this that feels very much like a dying gasp of baby boomer moral majority Christianese American Christianity that the Lord is allowing to die out, in my opinion. When I look at Christian nationalism from an extremist standpoint, which is really the point of your question, it's hard for me to not also see some of this is just part of the politics that's been in our country for quite some time, and it's just the latest iteration. However, it does seem to be that in the last five to seven years, A number of those moral majority Republicans have increasingly been comfortable with setting aside their principles for the sake of winning. And some of those principles include, (laughs) we want to embrace a strongman approach. We want to be aggressive, so aggressive that our rhetoric might incite violence. So aggressive that Trump is okay. Trump's rhetoric, Trump's bullying, Trump's very hostile words towards certain women or towards certain people groups, that has been tolerated, if not embraced, by a number of people. And so within the people that might check the box on the surveys that make you a Christian nationalist, there are some that are completely interested in using hostile action to achieve their in-group success. That is extremism. So there's also probably plenty of people that are like, no, 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 we can take our stand. This is what I believe. I want the country to look like this. But no, we shouldn't use hostile action to achieve that. 
And hostile action isn't just violence. Hostile action, like you said earlier, is rhetoric. It can be. Yes. So every time we talk about this, and I realize the audience that's listening to this podcast, I'm probably not at risk here, but I need to share this so that as your audience is talking to others, they're cautious. One of the challenges about the moment that we're in is that by painting with too broad of a brushstroke, we run the risk of actually radicalizing more people. So there is a legitimate debate to be had about whether the constitution could be changed and we could become a Christian nation. Now, I personally, from a political standpoint, don't think that's a good idea. From a spiritual standpoint, I don't think that's a good idea. But if you want to have a political movement that is calling for a constitutional convention and changing the constitution, well, let's have that political dialogue. That's fine. We're a free country. We can have those ideas. That doesn't concern me. It does concern me if, in your mind, Christian nationalism is we need to forcibly silent other religions or secular people who are not Christians, that that starts to get into hostile action. Or if you think the only way that you, a Christian nationalist, or I hate even using the term Christian because I'm not entirely convinced that most Christian nationalists are actually Christians from a biblical standpoint, but we'll set that aside. My concern is if you think that the only way for you to hold on to power is by suppressing or hurting what you would consider your outgroup, that's extremist. So there's definitely a streak or a group within the Christian nationalist movement that is extremist. Also, there do seem to be white nationalists and white supremacists who are absolutely all on board with Christian nationalism. It is a different flair of Christian nationalism for them, but they don't mind. It's kind of a, hey, you have similar objectives to me. You want to preserve Anglo-Saxon culture. I do too. And for a, a white supremacist in particular, it's not so much about the Christian faith. It's that the Christian faith dominated Europe and dominated Anglo-Saxon culture. And so to preserve Anglo-Saxon culture, we should be a Christian nation because that's what a good Anglo-Saxon believes. So therefore, Christian nationalism is a good thing for them because it is affirming their white supremacist ideology. So there's intermingling too of actual extremist ideology that embraces Christian nationalism because it supports their extremist ideology. But if you say that too loudly and too broadly, you run the risk of isolating other nominal Christian nationalists that aren't extremist, and you're telling them they're a racist. And I'm sure you've met a person like this. They're not actually racist. They're also not informed. They're not educated about maybe the history of where some of these ideologies are coming from. So don't paint with too broad of a brushstroke. Offer a lot of grace when you're approaching somebody who might hold some of these beliefs until they prove you otherwise. You shouldn't assume they're an extremist, but you can offer some cautions or some concerns that there might be extremist elements within the movement. Yeah, man, there's so much I want to say in response to that. First of all, I think you're totally right. It's one of my concerns with how the left handles the term Christian nationalism. I've gotten into these conversations with people on Twitter, and I'll say, hey, you need to stop, and here's why. Because on the left, Christian nationalism equals a Christian who believes their faith and ethics have a place in the public square. 
Well, okay, that is actually not Christian nationalism. That's liberalism, right? That's one of the fundamental building blocks of our society. So that's not the same thing. But when you start telling someone who's uninformed and doesn't understand what Christian nationalism is or what liberalism is, that if they want to bring their faith to the public square, they're a Christian nationalist. They go, okay, great. I guess I'm a Christian nationalist now. And they start listening to more of the extreme voices because, well, I guess they're Christian nationalists too. And because they feel under attack, I can't even bring my faith into the public square. They become more open to those ideas. One thing that I'm grateful for right now is by the time this episode airs, there will be a book published by a guy named Stephen Wolf that's defending Christian nationalism. And I'll tell you why I'm grateful, because I think his views are, frankly, unbiblical and reprehensible. I'll be very direct about it. But but they actually say what Christian nationalism actually is. And he opens it up with a quote from a very well-known racist saying that the world should be divided up into tribes. And that's what makes us human is our various tribes, ethnic groups. And if you follow his train of thought, you know where it's going. America as a Christian nation has a tribe, an ethnic group, a religious identity that in a real sense needs to be in charge is identity politics. But what I appreciate about his book is that he's going to give the lie. Now we'll at least be able to go and say, hey, all of these people who you listen to at NACON who are now promoting this guy's book. Let's look at what he says in his book. Is that you? No, that's not me. I'm not a racist. Great. You're not a Christian nationalist. That's the beauty of finally being clear and articulate on the far right. But I think what you're saying is really helpful. And it's helpful for me too, as I'm interacting with people who are dabbling with the Christian nationalist ideology, is remembering this isn't so much an ideology as it is a expression of an internal experience of loss and pain and grief. And so if I can sidestep the conversation about Christian nationalism and instead get into the conversation about what do you feel afraid of? What do you feel like you've lost? I might actually stand a chance of bringing them into the biblical story, which helps them enter into the presence of God, who is a non-anxious presence. And maybe over time, they can become a non-anxious presence as well. I could keep talking with you here for another hour easily. This has been such a delightful conversation. Really quick, could you just let our listeners know where they can find you, how they can see what you're working on? Thanks for the opportunity. I'm on Twitter at, at New Summits, which is N-E-U-S-U-M-M-I-T-S. And I'm working on a book that will be out next year on this topic on Christian extremism and how we rediscover the path back to peace. So I'm trying to wrestle with the very thing that you were describing, like how do we have those conversations and still maintain relationships, even with those that might be down that rabbit hole and in a dark spot. But I really do find hope that I don't know what God has planned for our country. And it's not so much a hope in America as it is a hope that the church was built for the moment that we're in. And while it is a very difficult and dark moment, we have a hope that is so much stronger than the darkness that we're in. So look for that book out next fall. <laughs> I want to know how to get an early copy. I need to read it now. You've said so many wonderful, lovely things today about how to love our friends, our family who might be vulnerable, how to, I hope, resist it if you see that vulnerability, the fear inside of your own life. I think everybody, if they're being honest, we all have fears and we all experience those things. And of course, you said, how do we respond with nuance? How do we root ourselves in the biblical story instead of a cultural narrative? And so today's just been fantastic. Would you just mind praying for our listeners? Oh my gosh, yes, I love that. Uh, Father, um, thank you for this conversation, for the opportunity um, to reflect on how you have already equipped us through your word, through your spirit, through your church to um, minister and be present in what feels like a very dark time and space. 
Uh, I thank you for the ministry of Truth Over Tribe. I thank you for these listeners. And I pray that you would um, provide them insight and wisdom as they are um, offering light in the places that you have put them. And we ask, um, we, we ask for peace in our country, Lord. It is, uh, it is a, a difficult time for many people. And we ask that you would um, have mercy and uh, spare, spare us um, of any more attacks, more violence. Um, and we ask for wisdom to know how to uh, create um, a safer spaces for our children and for the next generation. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 